everybody and welcome to oh man it's been a while episode four i think of clef notes <laughs> yes we're on episode four i'm seth i'm Allie. and uh sorry for how long of a delay it's been we've had some stuff going on in our personal lives various colds and allergy attacks and hopefully this will be the beginning of us getting back onto a regular schedule for y'all yeah um so what are we talking about today Allie? Well, today we're going to talk a little bit about listomania, um, which was the reaction that fans and audiences had to Franz Liszt. And also a song by Phoenix. Also a song by Phoenix. Uh, we should probably license that so we can play it. That's true, yeah. We'll start shelling out the big bucks for that. Yeah. <laughs> if you haven't heard that song, you should go listen to it because it's really good. It is a good song. Very nostalgic for, like, our late high school, early college days. Yeah. Um, so, who is Franz Liszt? Who is he? He's a composer. I know he that He is much. a composer. Do you know anything else about Franz Liszt? Um, no. I'm going to guess he's Austrian. He's not Austrian. Is he German? No. Oh, man. He is Hungarian. Oh. Um, and he was a composer, a teacher, and first and foremost, really, a virtuoso pianist. Um, he was born in Hungary in 1811, and his dad was a musician who worked for um, some of the Esterhazy princes and personally knew Haydn and Beethoven. So Liszt has this like really good musical lineage right from the start. Um, so his dad was just a musician, not a composer. Um, I think at that time, like pretty much if you were a musician, you were a composer. Oh, okay. Um. But I'm not entirely sure. Hmm. What I read said he was a musician, but <laughs> I think it's not unlikely that he was also a composer. Okay. What do you play? I also don't know that. Oh. <laughs> but it, it's really not that important <laughs> because nobody remembers Franz Liszt's dad. That's true. It's all about Franz Liszt. That's true. Um, so Liszt's earliest exposure to music was his father playing music, um, music that he would hear during mass in church and traveling bands of Romani people. Oh, cool. Yeah. Really neat. That is really neat. So I guess, I know like there's a large amount of like history of ethnocentrism and stuff, or I guess racism with Romani people. I don't know. Uh, I don't I, know what I, the correct I term think is. I would but say racism. Okay. Um, so was it just like he'd go to them? Like, I guess Romani music, I think, I would assume by and large, wasn't popular with, like, the traditional upper crusty folks. No, but, I mean, he wasn't necessarily upper crusty That's because true. his father was a working musician. And so okay. he was, like, very probably stoutly in the middle class. Um, but, I mean, during those times, if you lived in a big city, there were probably, like, groups of Roma just around in the city playing music on the streets, that sort of thing. And there's a very, like, large population of Roma people in Eastern Europe during this time. So okay. just growing up in Hungary um, would have allowed him to have that exposure. Gotcha. Makes sense. Um, Liszt began learning piano at age seven and began composing at age eight. Um, by age nine, he had wealthy sponsors who sent him to Vienna to get a education in music. 
when you start composing that early, is it like when you say start composing, is that like professionally, like to the point that people actually enjoyed it, or just like I'm a kid and I'm writing music, and they're like, oh, look at you, you little composer. With List, it was yeah. Okay. If we're talking about them being composers at a young age, it's because they composed works that were of actual like quality. Okay. So like we talk about Mozart composing his first piece. Uh, I want to say when he was like five. Okay. And like it was definitely a useful composition, mm-hmm. but it still had musical value. Gotcha. It wasn't just like plunking around that on a keyboard sense. or something. Um, but List was the same way. He gave his first public concert at age 11 um, and was a huge success. Um, as you can imagine, seeing a little 11 year old playing prodigi- prodigiously on the piano. Yeah. Is that. Um... Probably like a solo work, I guess. Like, or when like, like a solo artist in today's world, when they say, hey, I'm doing a concert, typically there's like a backup band. Is that kind of the same thing in the classical world back then? No, he probably performed on a concert with several other people, but he would have probably performed just solo, like by himself. Okay. Unless he was playing a concerto with an orchestra, but that is not what I read said. (laughs) So I think it was just him on the piano by himself. Okay. Uh, At several points in his childhood, he wanted to join the church and become a priest, Hmm. but his parents convinced him not to. That's interesting. Uh, Yeah. Very interesting. And it gets more interesting later because he'll loop back around to the religious stuff. But he actually took a break from composing and performing for a few years in his late teens and early 20s to read and get an education because up to that point, his only education had been in music. Wow. Um, he was re-inspired after this like break from composing and performing. Um, after attending a concert put on by Niccolo Paganini, um, who we haven't talked about yet, but this will probably be a topic for another episode. Paganini is known as the greatest violin virtuoso of all time. Really? And people thought he was possessed because he could play so fast. Wow. Yeah. So List saw him play and was like, I want to be as good at piano as Paganini is at violin. It's quite the, quite the dream to have. Yeah, really. Um, <laughs> and during this time, he also became friends with Frederick Chopin, um, who's another very famous composer. Mm-hmm. Um, I have heard that name. Good job. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And Chopin is Polish, so he's also an Eastern European composer, which is kind of interesting. Um, But Chopin helped develop Liszt's romantic and emotional side to his playing. So, like, Liszt had all of this virtuosity already. Mm -hmm. um, But Chopin is really known for writing and was known for playing, too, with just, like, such emotion. And so I guess them being friends, that really rubbed off on Liszt. Cool. Um. A little bit after this time, he started having an affair with a countess. Um, it lasted six years, and they had three children. Um, Blondine, Cosima, and Daniel. Well, she, was the Blondine the name of a kid? Yes. Okay. Yes. It, were they blonde? Well, it's, it's B-L-A-N-D-I-N-E. Oh, okay. But, I mean, I'm thinking probably pronounced Blondine. <laughs> and... Because <laughs> Blandine doesn't sound very good. Um, so was it... Uh, three kids seems like more than just an affair, I guess. Although I guess affair is just the term you Yeah, use. well, I mean, she was married to uh, a count. So um, was it like an open secret affair? I feel like once you have three kids, it's kind of hard 
to hide <laughs> that something's going on. Yeah. So Liszt was living in Paris at the time, and this countess was an author and ran in the same sort of like bohemian circles as Chopin mm. um, and all of Chopin's artist friends, like actual visual artists and other writers. And it was, I think, a very liberal sort of group of people. Gotcha. Um, and so it was definitely acknowledged that they were having an affair. Yeah. Um, there was nothing secretive about it. Okay. Um, they ended up parting ways when Liszt pledged financial support for a monument to Beethoven um, and began touring again to pay for it. So Beethoven had died, like, years prior, um, and somebody wanted to put up a monument to him in his hometown of Bonn, and they needed financing. So Liszt was like, I'll pay for it, and started touring to like, okay. work up the money for it. So by this time, he's pretty popular, because he obviously has the money for this. Yes. But this is not like... At his most popular. Okay, so Listomania hasn't we're, started We're yet. getting there. Okay, we're yeah. ramping up. Yes. Okay. So he continued to tour for the next eight years. He spent holidays with the Countess and their children. Um, and they continued to have a sort of like on and off relationship. Um, but they weren't like together together okay. for this period of time. Is that, are we entering his 30s towards the end of this? I'm trying to. Yes. Okay. Uh, yes. Okay. Yes. We're in his 30s. <laughs> okay. I'm <laughs> doing some quick math. Um, these eight years were Liszt's most, like, famous concert period. So he gave concerts three to four times per week for a total of over a thousand performances over the eight-year period. Wow. Yeah, he was just, like, performing everywhere. And that's crazy considering the amount of travel that he probably had to do, too, and how long travel took yeah. as, um, at this time period. What? What were the years again? Or, I guess, what were his active years? Like? His active years? I actually didn't write down the date. Are we like late 1800s? It doesn't need to be exact. I was just no, so he was to... born in 1811, so this is probably this okay. is the 1840s. Like mid 18. Okay. Yeah. So there's like trains, but not good trains. Yeah. I was trying to put and in my head the technological yeah. stuff that he could <laughs> He's also with. in like Eastern Europe. That's true. So maybe not as developed as. Well, I guess he's not in Eastern Europe at this point. He's in like. Kind of all over. Big cities. Yeah. yeah. But. Um, is this. Obviously, it's a huge amount of concerts just in general, but just like. The regularity of concerts like this is abnormal for, like, a really famous composer, kind of compared to some of the other ones we've mentioned. Well, so, not... A lot of famous composers would have their works performed on a regular basis, but, like, Liszt was a concert artist. So not only was he a composer, he was a famous pianist. Okay. So, like, his big thing is that, like, he was the one performing. Right, so that's, like, really his craft. Not necessarily the composing, but really the performance. I really think it was both married together. Okay. Um, because his compositions, like, he wrote them at the time because he was only one, like, one of the only ones who could play them mm -hmm. because of his level of ability. Gotcha. And so it was, like, him writing for himself and his playing making his compositions more famous because his playing was so good, but also his compositions were great, too. Which, I guess, this would be a good time to play one of those compositions. Yeah. So this is La Campanella, which is Italian for the little bell. Um, and it's one of his six grand etudes. Um, its melody comes from one of Niccolo Paganini's concertos, which is kind of cool. Um, and it's known as one of the absolute hardest pieces ever written for piano.
So, um, I have two questions initially right off the bat. First, uh, for our music term of the day, what exactly is an etude? Okay, so an etude just means a study. So that means that this piece was either written to teach something specific or just has like a certain idiom or theme about it that is like teaching you something. So this specifically, um, like the melody that you're hearing, the mm-hmm. and the like super high bell note that's all in the right hand. So the right hand is jumping all over the piano and the accuracy that you need to do that because at times it's jumping two octaves. Okay. Um, the accuracy that you have to have to do that and to bring out the melody with such quick notes is like crazy. So I'm assuming... I'm assuming you answered my second question because I was going to ask then what makes this one of the hardest piano pieces yeah. ever. <laughs> that would be it. <laughs> um, and it, this is like this tempo on this recording mm-hmm. is not the fastest that I've heard. And the tendency is for some people to play it a lot faster, which makes it even more impressive. Wow. But I mean, this is still very impressive. Yeah. So during this time that List was touring, he received an honorary doctorate from the University of Königsberg, uh, which was unheard of at the time. Really? So he was like one of the first people to get an honorary doctorate in, I guess, Germany at this point. What was it in? Do you know? I could probably it, just it like music. literally just said an honorary doctorate. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so besides touring a lot during this time, List became a philanthropist um and he gave away a lot of the money that he made touring wow so by his mid-40s he had made so much money performing that virtually all of his performing fees from there on out were donated to charity that's really cool besides funding the beethoven monument um he also funded the hungarian national school of music and he contributed to the building fund of the cologne cathedral and several other churches wow that's kind of cool that his name is on the cologne cathedral yeah basically um so for somebody like this does most of their money at this point would it have come from like um like ticket sales equivalent or like the rich uh patrons i mean i would say from both i don't know that much about this but he also would have printed the music that he composed and oh got money from selling yeah and even though it was so difficult people definitely would have bought it because list was all the rage right um he actually retired from performing at 35 and like retired from performing is kind of like loose because he still gave concerts on occasion, but he wasn't doing that rigorous schedule that he had upkept for those eight years where he was performing three to four times a week. Yeah. I could see that being exhausting. Yeah. Um, he was convinced by a Polish princess whose name was Caroline Suzanne Wittgenstein. Nice job. Thank you. Uh, to focus on composition instead of performing. And this is part of the reason that his legacy as a performer is so lasting is because he retired at the height of his ability. Mm. He never got bad as a performer. Um, I'm, I mean, I'm sure that he continued to retain most of his ability through most of his life. Sure. But, I mean, you can't really keep up that level of performance if you're not doing it as often yeah i mean um, or if you're getting older and you're getting arthritis or 
um, other ailments that might affect. Yeah, I'm sure it's very similar to like sports athletes and stuff and the ones that, I mean, there's a whole class of really good athletes that's been, that can't retire and just go way beyond when they should retire kind of thing. And you yeah. start to remember them for the end of their career rather than at their height. Absolutely. Um, but that was not a list because he just quit at 35. He continued giving piano lessons and he wrote articles championing, championing other composers' work. Um, and still performed on occasion, but just not as rigorously. And so he went more, I guess, like heavily into just, I think he mentioned this, just composition then. And teaching. Yeah. Yeah. So he lived with this princess, Caroline, for nearly 12 years, and they really wanted to get married, but couldn't because she was divorced, and the Catholic Church wouldn't give her permission to marry List. So, so that wasn't like a station thing, like with Beethoven and his yeah, loves. No. I mean, it was kind of like... She was divorced and probably could do whatever she wanted at this point. Because, I mean, she's in her 30s, like, presumably. An old woman beyond her yeah, years. Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, it's List. Everyone wanted him. So, oh, yeah, because I guess we talked that Beethoven really, like, started to grow in fame after, right? Yeah, well, and List wasn't the same as Beethoven. Because Beethoven was known for having a temper and for being messy. And List was kind of a pretty boy. Oh, okay. And had really nice manners. And the public images were just like vastly Yeah, different. exactly. Yes, even though both of their music was beloved. Um, in 1859, List's son Daniel died, and two years later, his daughter Blondine also died. So to cope, List went to live in a monastery near Rome. He had already joined the Third Order of St. Francis five years prior, and I was like, what is that? So I looked it up, and the Third Order is... For married people who wanted to be Franciscan and live as Franciscans out in the world. So, like, the first order of St. Francis is for monks, the second order is for nuns, and the third order is for married people who want to be really religious. Fascinating. But don't want to be celibate. <laughs> I still don't ignore this one thing and yeah. have tons of fun. Which, I mean, like, it's kind of funny because obviously he had had sex because he had three children, but right. he wasn't ever married. That's true. So, I don't know. Anyway. So... I think I think you kind of said it right there, but my I was going to ask that up to this point, he still only had those three kids, and then two of them passed away. Yes. Okay. And those were the only kids he ever had. Oh, okay. So he, while he was in this monastery, he received tonsure, which is where they shave the top part of your head, and oh. you keep the like the sides of hair, like okay. you typically would imagine a monk having. Yeah, I didn't realize and that was the name of it. It is the name of it. He also took the four minor orders of porter. Lector, exorcist, and acolyte. So essentially, he did everything except become an actual priest. Wow. Yeah, he was extremely devoted to the, the church. church. Yeah. That's so fascinating. It is. Very interesting. Um, from the late 1860s on, List had moved out of the mon monastery, and he kept up three residences in Rome, Weimar, and Budapest. He traveled between them like pretty much constantly and it's estimated he traveled at least 4000 miles every year which was a lot for the time um, yeah, because of the modes of transportation but also he was old at this time and so he was in his 50s and older and was still keeping up a very like rigorous schedule so i don't know if you read anything about like what he was actually doing like is he 
Is he still doing like music for all this stuff? Yeah. So he's mostly teaching okay. during this time. He was teaching um, in Hungary and I mean, in other places as well. But List, like as a teacher, he never charged for his lessons. That's cool. like all of his students were able to take from him or free. But he was very demanding. Uh, he wanted to focus on musical interpretation and in lessons instead of technique. And okay. he would tell his students to, quote, wash their dirty linen at home and come to lessons technically proficient and prepared so that they could just focus on the actual music of it. He seems kind of like one of those people where it's like, you're so good that you can't like, I'm sure he was a great teacher, but there's that whole thing where it's like, you're just so good. You don't understand how easy things are. You're just like, just play the thing. <laughs> Why is this so hard? I mean, that definitely could have been part of it, especially technique wise. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. Because like, he was so able to do anything. Yeah. He um he also didn't mince words and lessons with students. Uh, one student was playing the opening chords to a piece by Beethoven, and Liszt told him, "Do not chop beefsteak for us," because the student was hitting the chords too hard. <laughs> um, but he also wanted his students to be artistically themselves and not copies of Liszt. Mm. So he encouraged them to disagree with him on artistic interpretations and to um follow their own paths as long as it was beautiful. That's cool. Yeah. So, did you see anything about, like, how you became a student? Because, like, obviously, if money wasn't really an object since they were free, is it like you just went and asked him and he'd be like, you're worthy of me or you're not? Or did he kind of give everybody a chance then you just kind of fell by the wayside if you couldn't well, handle it? he did teach at the Hungarian National School of Music. Okay. And so that was one of the ways that he got students but i think just like his contacts probably sent him people okay um because he wasn't just friends with chopin he was also friends with schubert and schumann um and brahms and so really like all the big composers of the time were friends with list okay and probably would send promising young artists to him to have lessons that makes sense so in 1881 list fell down a flight of stairs and it took him eight weeks to re regain mobility. Um, he had a lot of other health issues towards the end of his life. He had dropsy, which I never knew what this was before. I kind of assumed it was like diarrhea because that's what it sounds like. But it's not. Um, Is it a tendency to drop things? No, it's fluid retention slash swelling in the body's tissues, usually Ugh. legs and arms. So towards the end of his life, like definitely probably couldn't play very well anymore. Um, but besides that, he also had asthma, cataracts, insomnia, heart disease, and depression. Jeez. Um, he said, I carry a deep sadness of the heart, which must now and then break out in sound. And his compositions during the end of his life really reflected that. See, this is like his 50s? Do I think he said? No, this is starting in 1881. So he's in his 70s. Oh, okay. Sorry. Yeah. Um, and he was in poor health until he died in 1886. That's so, sad. yeah, I mean, it, it is kind of sucky, but I mean, he he was old for the time. So. So did he stay. With like the more religious thing through the end of his life, like it kind of like he had his music period and then like he still had the teaching and stuff. But like was then did he like ever go back to music or was it just kind of like doing all the religious stuff kind of up? until? Oh, no, I think he was mostly doing music. OK. Yeah, and I mean, he was still very devout, I think, but, like, he wasn't living in the monastery anymore. Gotcha. Okay. Um, 
this would be a good place to play another piece. Yeah. By list. Let's listen to some more of him. So this piece is La Lugubre Gondola, which uh, is one of his most important light works and was written four years before his death. Um, yeah, I can definitely see how, uh, it's a darker time period in his life, because it's, I mean, it's very slow, and it just kind of feels like the end, <laughs> I guess, for lack of a better way of saying it. I don't know, it's like, it's just one of those vibes, I think, it's just, like, sad and slow. Yeah. Um, do you notice anything about, like, the compositional style that's different from the first piece? Um... I don't know if this is what you're getting at, but it doesn't seem, I guess, technically difficult, really, at all. That's absolutely what I'm getting at. Okay. Um, and I think probably partially because of his health, like, this would have been something that he much more likely could have played at this point oh. in his life. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so this piece was actually written, uh, we think, after a premonition that List had of regard Wagner's death. Hmm. Um and Wagner was the second husband of Liszt's daughter Cosima. Oh, okay. So he was Liszt's son-in-law. Gotcha. And I mean say what you will about Wagner's like anti-Semitic beliefs, which are <laughs> a topic for yeah. another episode. That'll definitely be an episode. But I mean they had a relationship and List always loved Wagner's music. And so I'm sure that a premonition that he had of Wagner's death was very... Um, troubling. Yeah, troubling and heartrending. And can see where it would provoke a composition such as this. So when you have these kind of things... I don't know, I'm saying this asking you because you're the music person. <laughs> like, I'm assuming you're not writing for performance like i just had a premonition of my son-in-law's death i want to write this and then perform it is it more kind of like i guess like a diary and like this is his medium i mean i think it's probably different for every composer just as it's different for like every visual artist like why They're artists something. produce works yeah um and i'm sure it probably was an outlet to a certain extent because i mean he's been doing this since he was seven that's true um and it's really like 
all that he's ever known. And whether or not it was meant to be performed, um, like, I think a lot of the works that composers wrote weren't necessarily like, I know this is going to be a hit. Right. And it's going to be performed a lot. Um, I mean, Liszt wrote so much music yeah. that I think it probably did, like, to a certain extent, um, it was like a compulsory thing. I just, like, it had to be put down because it was in his head. Makes sense. So, <laughs> to get off of this dark... Yeah, I'm done being sad. Yeah. Make me happy. Um, let's actually talk about Listomania. Woo. So, Listomania was happening during the eight-year period that List was performing a lot. Okay. Um, the first, like, Listomania or List fever uh, happened at a concert in Berlin in 1841. Um, but the term Listomania wasn't coined until 1844 specifically in relation to the hysteria brought on by Liszt's um, concert season in Paris. So Heinrich Heine was the guy who coined this term Listomania. And he's kind of interesting because he's a poet. Um, and Liszt set some of his poems as songs. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. And so did a bunch of other composers at this time. So like <laughs> Schumann set his poems, Brahms set his poems, Schubert set his poems. Like he was a very, very famous German poet. So does that mean like the pieces like then had singers along and they'd basically like sing the words? Yeah. And... So they, these are like art songs. So okay. voice and piano. All right. That's what I'm assuming the definition of an art song is. Yeah. Generally. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yes. Okay. And art songs... I mean, we're, like, coming about in this time for the first time. Like, Schubert was the first one who did art songs, and so it was a relatively new phenomenon. Gotcha. But art song specifically has, like, some sort of higher art form subject material, okay. usually. So Heinrich Heine was writing really gorgeous poems um, that were fit to be set to music, to be art songs. Cool. So I guess how did he coin the term? Well, um, he just, like, I mean, I think he wrote, like, an article or something that appeared in a paper. Okay, so it was literally, like, like headlines. Yeah. Yeah, but this is, uh, this is what Heinrich Heine said about the Paris season. He said, when formerly I heard of the fainting spells which broke out in Germany, and especially in Berlin, when Liszt showed himself there. I shrugged my shoulders pityingly and thought, quite Sabbatarian Germany does not wish to lose the opportunity of getting the little necessary exercise permitted it. So he's saying, Germans are very uptight, so we should just let them have their fun. He goes on, in their case, thought I, it is a matter of the spectacle for the spectacle's sake. Thus I explained this listomania and looked on it as a sign of the politically unfree conditions existing beyond the Rhine. Wow. Yet, I was mistaken after all, and I did not notice it until last week at the Italian Opera House where Liszt gave his first concert. This was truly no Germanically sentimental, sentimentalizing Berlin audience, before which Liszt played quite alone, or rather accompanied solely by his genius. And yet, how convulsively his mere appearance affected them. How boisterous was the applause which rang to meet him. What a claim it was. A veritable insanity, one unheard of in the, an the annals of furor. 
Wow. So he's saying he has literally never seen an audience react like this That's before. That's crazy. Um, and he thought that, like, the politically stuffy Germans were just, like, this was their only outlet. Yeah, they so, couldn't handle it. <laughs> yeah, they just, like, they had to do something. But where even, like, in Paris, which was very free, when they were reacting like that, he was like, okay, maybe we should pay attention to this. So not only was this partially his playing, but also it was how Liszt looked. Okay. So actually Hans Christian Andersen described him as a... Hans slum- Christian Andersen? Yeah, Hans Christian <laughs> Andersen. Um, as a slim young man with dark hair hung around his pale face. Ooh. And then Heine said how powerful, how shattering his mere physical appearance was. So he was a good looking dude. Sounds like it. Um, quite dashing. And um, fans, mostly women, would fight over his handkerchiefs and gloves and would often just faint at the sight of him. Like, he didn't even have to play. He just had to show up and they would swoon. So he was literally doing, like, the throwing the drumsticks out to the crowd, like, throwing his handkerchiefs and gloves out to the women? Yes. Or they, <laughs> they were, were coming up to him and trying just to tear it, it. Off, their bo- <laughs> off of his body. Yeah. Man, that um, is so crazy. Oh, it gets crazier. Um. Women would wear his portrait on brooches and cameos. Nuh-uh. which Yeah, which is like, I mean, you didn't really do that of a man who wasn't your husband. Yeah, this is like, well, it's so much funnier, too, because, I mean, we just spent so much time talking about how religious he was. Yeah, he wasn't <laughs> like, a playboy. Like, he did not take advantage of this. Yeah. Because he was in, like, two committed relationships, and, I mean, he wasn't, like, sleeping around, I don't think. Yeah, well, I mean, Grant, he was the male mistress of a woman, but for the, <laughs> for the yes. one, but yeah. other than that. Um, women would try to get locks of his hair. Oh my goodness. Um, like, <laughs> tear it out of his head. Um, and some fans would even bring little glass vials to pour his coffee dregs into and then wear around their necks. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh, I know this is an auditory medium. My jaw is actually dropped a couple <laughs> yeah. times from what Allie's describing. Uh, it's just hilarious to me. Um, List once threw away an old cigar stump in the street under the watchful eyes of an infatuated lady-in-waiting. Oh, no. <laughs> who reverently picked the offensive weed out of the gutter, had it encased in a locket, and surrounded with the monogram FL in diamonds, and went about her courtly duties unaware of the sickly odor it gave forth. God, this is, like, the creepiest, weirdest thing. Oh, it was actually a craze. So... Listomania wasn't used in the exact same way that, like, Beatlemania was. Yeah. Because, I mean, this happened, again, in the 1900s when rock bands started getting popular, like, with the Beatles, with the Stones. Um, Elvis Presley, I'm sure. Yeah, with Justin Bieber. Yeah. Like, people have always gone crazy for... hmm But here, Listomania, like, in the 1800s, the word mania actually carried, like, medical connotations right. of, like, craziness. Yeah. And, like, manic was, like, actually, like... Yeah. A doctoral thing Absolutely. that you would prescribe. And people thought that listomania was contagious. And there were even some who recommended measures to immunize the public against listomania. Do you know what some of those measures were? I'm so, I, I oh, don't know. No. That was all that they said. Like, I mean, what would they do to inoculate I don't know. That's people? What, that's what I'm just trying to picture. Like, how do you... Take, What's a, the take a little a little bit of list and inject it in there. Yeah. Like an antidote? Or like how they do vaccines? Well, I mean, it would be how they did vaccines, because they had vaccines back then. Yeah, I know. It's, but I yeah, know. I know. It's hilarious. Maybe it's just like recommending some, uh, oh, well, they didn't do, they didn't like smoke weed, but they did, they did the one kind of drug that you rub against the back of your, oh, opium. Maybe they had <laughs> like recommend opium to calm the nerves when you were around them. I don't read 
anything about that, but um, Southern Germans thought they wouldn't catch Listomania because they had stronger constitutions than Northern Germans or the French. That's so, so it was funny. it was also kind of like a um, ethnocentric sort of thing. We're wow. like, you guys might have the Listomania, but we're not gonna get it because we're better than that. So, um, you bring up like later rock stars and stuff have had this. Is this like the first? Is it, is he like the first one? Yes. Okay. And I mean, like, people would go wild over, like, Beethoven's compositions. Right. But not for Beethoven. Okay. This is list as a person, as, like, an icon. Right. So this it's is like not the, just his music. This, okay. So it's like the first person that's yeah, hit this level of the fame. the whole package. That is so crazy. <laughs> um, and, I mean, I'm sure that there were people, like... Famous opera stars going forward, like people who had were very visible as performing artists, like also had this happen to them. But like Liszt, as a composer and artist, was like really one of the first. Yeah, because I guess you mentioned in our Castrati episode, which is so long ago now, <laughs> um, yeah. that there were like some of them were got like tons of gifts. Oh, and were absolutely, big and, and were people were infatuated with them. But obviously not to. Not this, this crazy level. Yeah. Um, so Heine tried to explain the cause for the mania. Um, and he said this. He said, what is the reason of this phenomenon? The solution of this question belongs to the domain of pathology rather than that of aesthetics. Wow. A physician whose specialty is female diseases and whom I asked to explain the magic our list exerted upon the public smiled in the strangest manner and at the same time said all sorts of things about magnetism, galvanism, electricity, of the contagion of the close hall filled with countless wax lights and several hundred perfumed and perspiring human beings, of historical epilepsy, of the phenomenon of tickling, of musical cantharides and other scabrous things, which I believe have reference to the mysteries of the Bona Dea. It definitely sounds like a poet pretending to be a doctor. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, he, I mean, he's just like, he's saying that <laughs> this physician he talked to like said all of these things about why this might be happening yeah um but he went on to say perhaps the solution of the question is not buried in such adventurous depths but floats on a very prosaic surface it seems to me at times that all this sorcery may be explained by the fact that no one on earth knows so well how to organize his successes or rather their mise and scene as franz list wow so he's saying franz list really knows how to work a crowd yeah was his um Obviously not to the same level, but, like, was he just as popular with men? Like, did men... Not for the looks, I guess, but, like... I didn't read anything specifically about men, but, like, I would imagine it wasn't only women at his concerts. Right. Like, women did not go alone to concerts. Yeah. So, arguably, like, half the audience was probably male and was probably also going crazy for him, just not in a, like, sexual way. Yeah. Did, um... Because I know a huge part of Beatles mania is when, like, they finally came across the Atlantic to the United States and the United States went crazy. Was there ever something like that that you read where, like, he did an American tour? I don't know how common it was for no, this kind of stuff to expand into the U.S. It was still fairly early um, for, like, people to start visiting the United States, like, composers especially. Okay. And it was kind of like, there's no reason to leave Europe because he's doing such a good job there. And it's that still, like, the 1840s in America, so... I mean, it's not, like, super industrialized yet. Yeah. We're not the powerhouse that we are in the later 1800s yeah. slash early 1900s when, like, people like Dvorak come and visit 
Maybe that's an episode for a future thing about yeah. the spread of classical music to America. I mean, that's also super, like, interesting. And I'm sure that his music, like, sheet music, probably reached America. Yeah, just um, not him. But no, he never went. Um, One other possible cause of listomania, people thought, was new liberal politics in northern Germany. Um, They thought that Friedrich Wilhelm IV's optimistic and popular political rhetoric, with its promise of liberal social reforms, predisposed the Berlin public to appreciate Liszt's various gestures in support of charitable humanitarian causes as they saw themselves in their monarch echoes in, like, Liszt's benevolence. Um, so they're also kind of saying that, like, the liberals are um, making people soft and predisposed to <laughs> this, <laughs> this artist who is charitable just as their new, like, champion king is charitable that's funny yeah um just so sorry because i'm trying to keep all the timelines and stuff together what is this during the eight-year period of crazy concerts yes okay and it didn't start it's not like the whole eight years is it like kind of well okay so the first like listomania thing that happened was in 1841 okay in berlin but the term wasn't coined until 1844 okay so i think like and when did that eight years of touring started again so those eight that eight year period started in 1838 and lasted until 1846. Okay. So it was the majority of that period. Gotcha. So yeah, I'm sure like he he started his concerts and a couple of years in it just <laughs> just went over a yeah, boiling point. Yeah, it exploded. Point. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so this is another good spot to play just a little bit of one of his most famous pieces. This is his Hungarian Rhapsody number no. two. sounds like really familiar to me it's very famous <laughs> and actually like if you type in list hungarian rap studio number two on youtube one of the first things that pops up is a tom and jerry episode where um tom is playing the piano yes tom is the cat tom is the cat tom, yes, is, the cat. tom is playing the piano and he's playing this piece 
Um, so Liszt wrote 19 Hungarian Rhapsodies, and this is by far the most famous of the set. It's used in a lot of cartoons, just used a lot in general. It's kind of funny though, the um the title of this one as a Hungarian Rhapsody is slightly misleading because the theme is actually a Romanian theme. Uh, not a Hungarian theme. Just gonna go back to the uh, the Roma influence. Yeah, exactly. Um and I mean a lot of like Hungarian sort of classical music, not like written in Hungary, Hungary, but like Brahms wrote like Hungarian dances and stuff. It has that Roma feel to it. Okay. Um, but they don't want to attribute it to the Roma, so they call yeah, it Hungarian. Exactly. It's like the exotic Eastern European sort of sound. Gotcha. Um, just since we're kind of doing a couple of these terms, since we're talking about different stuff they did, what is a uh, rhapsody? A rhapsody in music is a one-movement work that is episodic, yet integrated, free-flowing in structure, and featuring a range of highly contrasted moods, color, and tonality. So it's a lot of emotion bundled into one piece that's usually long. Um, one of the f- most famous rhapsodies would be Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue, mm-hmm. um, which, if you listen to it, that's another one that's been in a lot of cartoons. Yeah, uh, I Actually, I know that very well because <laughs> my dad... Uh, on his computer when he would initially log in would play <laughs> like the beginning clarinet yeah. solo that's so funny <laughs> um but rhapsodies are kind of like not a catch-all term but it's something that doesn't have a defined structure okay. like a sonata or a concerto or gotcha. like other suites the music version of like freeform poetry a little bit yeah Absolutely. It's usually like a through composed thing, which essentially means there's no form. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> um, there's no like ABA structure or anything like that because we talk about structure in music the same way we talk about structure in poetry. Um, where like an A section is always going to be the same mm-hmm. unless you say it's like an A prime section. It can get kind of complicated. But... Gotcha. Cool. Um, I guess kind of like as a Last question off the top of my head about it is, is I know we talked about other rock stars and stuff. Is this very unique for classical? I guess has there been another, or any of the other major classical composers ever hit this kind of like level of manic fame while they were active? I guess I cannot think of any other composers who reached this type of fame. Other performing artists did, especially opera stars of like the later eighteen hundreds, um, and like Paganini had a crazy following, um. Not as much as Liszt, but... Um, but not even, like, Mozart hit this level of just, like, absolutely crazy. No, not really. Hmm. That's so interesting, just because, like, obviously when I think the normal everyday person, you say, like, name a classical composer, it'll be Beethoven or Mozart, that just, like, mm-hmm. are the one that people put off. I don't even know if anybody would even, like, say Liszt. Partially, no, I think, just because... Not. Yeah, it's so fascinating how... Well, and the thing with Liszt, too, is, like, Mozart and Beethoven are ubiquitous a little bit because of their symphony compositions okay and list wrote symphonic works like he actually invented the symphonic tone poem which is a symphonic piece describing like something visual interesting um or a poem and like he invented that and he wrote symphonic works but his symphonic works were not what made him famous okay his piano playing almost exclusively um, as well as his compositions for piano. And I mean, you have to think about too, like he is traveling around in the 1840s. Mozart 
was in the late 1700s. And so mobility wasn't mm. as good for Mozart. Um, That's a great point. And so it wasn't as easy to get famous all over Europe like Liszt was. Yeah. Um, because you can travel as easily. Like Mozart did travel, but not nearly as much. So I guess for like modern listeners, are just symphonies more popular nowadays than like solo piano compared to like back then? I don't know, because I guess like every city, every major city for the most part has like a symphony. I guess you would play (laughs) symphonies. You wouldn't play just like solo piano. Well, I mean, you would do both. But I think I think one of the things with symphonies is that the scale of them provides a higher emotional response. Okay. Like for me personally, even though I'm a pianist, I would much prefer to go listen to a symphony than a solo piano concert because I like. It is very rare that somebody playing solo piano like gives me that kinesthetic like chill sensation that you get when you listen to something like really really gorgeous. Mm. But if if I'm in a hall and an orchestra is playing as loud as they can on some romantic symphony, like I'm going to feel that. There's just like no <laughs> if ands or buts about it. Yeah. Um and I don't have the same physical response to just solo piano, which I mean might be because I am a pianist and like that's what I do. Right. But I think I think symphonies are just like there's something really enticing about symphonic music, which is why we like movie music so much. Mm, that makes um, sense. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, I love soundtracks. I listen to them all the time when I'm doing stuff. Yeah, so I think that's part of it too. That makes sense. Yeah, um, I'd like to briefly end just by mentioning um the movie Listomania. This <laughs> seems to be a sort of like theme because for our past two episodes, um, and now this one, there have been movies associated <laughs> not particularly with our great topic. movies no not at all and this one is probably by far the worst so i read two different articles that were like listomania worst biopic of all time um so listomania was <laughs> oh, sorry it's just so funny uh you'll have to go on youtube and like look up the trailer yeah she had it me... is ridiculous ali had me watch it and she's about to describe it, I think, some, yeah. but regardless of how she describes it, you really just can't yeah, you, understand. Yeah, you just have to see it. You have to see it. But uh, Roger Daltrey, who is one of the members of The Who, the rock band, um, who is famous for, like, Pinball Wizard and Tommy, uh, he plays List in this and actually did all of the playing. And I think I read he did all of his own stunts. Oh, <laughs> interesting. <laughs> um, but all the music for it was composed by another like rock band guy um i didn't recognize the band he was from but it's essentially a lot of like synth like redos of lists works plus some like singing like some actual like rock songs um but the trailer opens with list flying through space on this like pipe organ spaceship thing um and there's a point in the trailer too where he and this woman are inside of a white grand piano on some train tracks and the train runs into them and it, and it blows just up. explodes. Yeah. So not very um accurate, one might say. <laughs> um, probably not worth a watch, considering it only has like a fifty percent on Rotten Tomatoes. But do but, watch the trailer. But do watch the trailer because it's hilarious. It's worth the five minutes or yeah, however long it's it is. So so funny. I'm very tempted to watch the whole movie, but I don't know if I can sit through it. But yeah. Um, yeah. I think we've been... It's a little bit of a longer episode for us, but I think it's just because we've been... 
got well, a lot to let out. Yeah, Liss is also just such an interesting guy. Yeah. And I mean, I will say I really didn't know this much about Liss when I started researching this episode. Yeah, I'd like, we've been kind of talking about, especially when we were starting out, like a first uh, episode. And I was like, this one could be good because it seems fun. And there's at least the Phoenix song. So maybe some people have heard of it before. And I know you were like, I don't really want to do it. I'm not that interested in the subject, yeah. but definitely as you started researching, you're like, list is so cool. Yeah, I got very interested. And I mean, part of just like to couch that a little part of my my thing is I have very, very small hands and I have never played any list because most of his pieces are just too like large for me to play. Um, And so I just kind of like because of that, didn't really have a lot of interest in him as a person slash composer. But I think through researching him, I've really realized that. He's a lot more than just like the fluff that I thought he was. Yeah. Um, you bought into the mania. I well, I wouldn't. Uh, You're not a list of mania. No, I'm not sure I would say that, <laughs> but I like him more than I did. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thanks for waiting, everybody. If you did. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. That was that was mostly on me. We'll be better. Uh, it's a work in progress, and um, I won't promise we'll be back in two weeks, but hopefully we are. Uh, yeah. Um, as always, leave us a review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. Um, we do have that Twitter, uh, at ClefNotesPod, if you want to reach out to us with questions or just feedback or anything, or episode ideas. Um, I know we've gotten a couple, uh, episode ideas from folks, and, uh, it's already exciting to just get a little bit of that kind of interaction, and people are interested enough to come up with their own ideas. Um, yeah, I think other than that, we'll, uh, talk to you guys later. Yeah, see you next week. 